Hi, welcome back to The Horrors. Hi, I'm Elise. I'm Shay. And here we are with the end of our accidental Stephen King-themed four-week episode. Just one long episode. Yes, we can't call it January exactly, but month-long extravaganza. Yes, we're just getting so good at picking themes, we've stumbled upon this one. And we've been excited to do this one for a while. Well, no. I have have been excited to do this one for a while. I don't remember what exactly I saw about this movie when it first came out that freaked me out so much. Maybe it was like the small cast. I think small cast horror movies can be really scary. Mm. But I really enjoy this. This one actually added to the list of movies that made me sob. Oh, really? Yes, this made me sob. But actually, in a very happy tears, fulfilled sort of way, I think this movie has surprisingly a very empowering conclusion compared to what I think it could have been given the content. And I thought there was a lot of beauty in this. Yeah, I mean, there's certainly some themes that are sensitive. So if you're sensitive to themes of sexual assault, specifically childhood sexual assault, maybe steer clear or read a summary before listening. But to Elise's point, I think that it resolves itself in a way that very much gives justice and power to our main lady, which I really appreciate. And it's another Flanagan adaptation. So you know, it's done in taste and style, (laughs) which I'm just really excited to get into. I feel like I've been living in this man's head Or we've been living in this man's head for the past few months. Yeah. It's all been so good. We've been so spoiled. (laughs) Starting in with our ladies in this movie, as Elise said, it's a small cast. So only really two characters played by three actresses. So our first character is Jessie. She is played primarily by Carla Gugino, which... I fucking love Carla Gugino, and I'm so happy I get to talk about her. She, I know you can't see this, but Shay wrote in the notes, Mommy, sorry. Yeah. <laughs> I feel like I've spoiled the joke with Kate Siegel, um, who is also in this movie. <laughs> so I was spoiled. I, I had a great time. But Carla Gugino is an American actress known for her roles in the Spy Kids trilogy, a.k.a. my sexual identity development, the mom in that. A Night at the Museum, American Gangster, Watchmen, Sucker Punch, and an upcoming film called Lisa Frankenstein, written by Diablo Cody. Wow. I'm excited. I am also excited. She's also known for TV roles in The Haunting of Hill House, Bly Manor, Midnight Mass, and The Fall of the House of Usher, as well as many other credits. She won a Fright Meter Award in 2017 for her role in this film, and she just received a Critics' Choice Award nomination for her role in The Fall of the House of Usher, as she fucking should. She was fucking brilliant. She was so good. And I'll tell you what, I was clinging. I was clinging to her brilliance in that series when I was watching her struggle in this movie. She's so fucking talented. I Mm -hmm. love every moment she's on screen. Oh my god, we're so spoiled with her. And then we have a young Jessie, otherwise known as Mouse, played by Chiara Aurelia, an American actress best known for her roles in Fear Street Part 2, 1978, and TV roles in Cruel Summer and Tell Me Your Secrets. Chiara also won two awards for Best Young Actress for her role in this film. And then we have the character of Sally, who is played by another mommy, (laughs) Kate Siegel. We obviously know her from Hush, Oculus, all of the hauntings of fill in the blank. (laughs) (laughs) And I literally don't say that dismissively. We've just been talking about her a lot. Um, (laughs) Haunting of Hill House, Fly Manor, Midnight Mass, Ball the House of Usher, everything, upcoming life of Chuck. Love Kate Siegel so much. Going into some pre-plot trivia, this is written and directed by Mike Flanagan, who, (laughs) (laughs) once again, cue the big inhale. (laughs) 
We know from Hush, Oculus Before I Wake, Conning of Hill House, Blind Matter, Midnight Mass, Follow the House of Usher, Midnight Club, Dr. Sleeb, Ouija Origin, Evil, Upcoming Life of Chuck. Love him very much. And the story is based on the 1992 novel by Stephen King, who called the film hypnotic, horrifying, and terrific after watching the final cut. I think it is all of those things, too. And I read this in an interview with Mike Flanagan. Him and Stephen King did not speak before the release of this movie. Wow. He sent him a rough cut of the film before it released as a, like, pleasantry, but they did not collaborate in the making of this film at all. Wow. I can't even imagine that, especially because it seems like Stephen King, based on past movies we've covered, adapted from his works, seemed like he really wanted to be a part of the artistic process. So maybe it is really showing that he trusts Mike Flanagan to handle with care. Or this made him trust Mike Flanagan enough to take on Dr. Sleep, which Mm -hmm. I do think they had a more collaborative role on. Okay. Because that was in 2019. So yeah, this is Flanagan's first foray into the King-averse. And I guess this cemented a level of trust for him to take on Dr. Sleep later on. Especially because this book was considered by many to be unfilmable because a lot of this book takes place in Jesse's head. So they're like, how do you make this something that is visual enough for people to get the story of? And he found a way to do it. I have never seen a movie like this. I adore the way they brought her thoughts into a visible way audiences can see. So let's get into it. Let's do it. Okay, so we have our opening scene. We see a woman packing a small suitcase. She lays out a beautiful new baby blue nightgown on the bed before she folds it up and puts it in her suitcase. This is Jesse, who we will later be introduced to. After she packs her bag, we see a man pack his own bag. He folds up some shirts and whatnot, puts it into his bag, and includes two sets of handcuffs laid neatly on top of his bag before he zips it up. And that will be our character, Gerald. Soon we see this couple, they are on their way somewhere. They're both in this gorgeous red, expensive-looking car, winding down some back-isolated roads in what I think we find out to be Alabama. As they're driving, we see the couple have a conversation. We see Gerald reach his hand across to put on Jesse's thigh, but she doesn't seem quite comfortable with this intimate gesture. She does grab his hand, hold it, and give it a kiss, though, so we see there's tenderness and care in that relationship. He is so distracted at one point, he almost hits a dog, but Jesse brings attention to it in enough time that he can stop. This dog looks like it might belong to someone. Jesse observes it's wearing a collar, but that it might be starving. It might be a runaway of some sorts because it's eating roadkill. But Gerald makes some kind of remark that, you know, the dog is going to get itself killed if it keeps eating roadkill. And he doesn't seem too sympathetic to the dog as they drive away from it and arrive at their beautiful, isolated beach house or lake house. It must be a lake house. So as Gerald gets out of the car, he takes a call. He's a high-powered attorney, it seems. And Jesse walks to the water's edge and takes in the scene. Jesse goes in to see that Gerald has stocked the fridge for the whole weekend. And Jesse then proceeds to cut up a nice hunk of steak to feed the stray dog outside. <laughs> yeah. While Gerald sneakily takes a Viagra. Mm-hmm. The dog emerges from the forest edge and approaches Jesse. She places the plate in front of him, but Gerald comes out and scares the dog away and is very upset with Jesse for feeding the dog a $200 steak. <laughs> yes. But he very quickly changes his tune and states that he married someone with such a good heart and Jesse responds, for better or worse. And I'm like, oh, gosh, like there is a lot of tension here. There's also a big age difference that we can observe. It seems like Gerald, he's in his 60s, I would say. And Jesse seems like she's maybe in her early 40s. So there is that age difference. And we don't know how long they've been married. The 11 years. 11 years. Okay. Okay. 
But based on the food that we see stocked up in the fridge, there's like chocolate-covered strawberries and cakes and all of this kind of pre-made stuff. It looks like they are on a romantic getaway. And that is even alluded to in the car before they arrive when Gerald says, this will be good for us. So it seems like they're on some kind of vacation to try to rekindle some of the romance or intimacy in their marriage. So they end up leaving the plate at the roadside as Jesse continues to apologize, but Gerald whisks her into the house, not even stopping to close the front door. That is insane to me. Which is crazy to me. It is very important for later. It is. They continue to the bedroom and pass a wedding photo of them that similarly kind of shows that stiff demeanor between the two of them. She changes into a nice little slip and almost forgets to take the tag off, placing it behind a book on the shelf above her as she then lays suggestively but very obviously uncomfortable announcing that she's ready. I also think it's interesting that they get here, maybe it's like 1 p.m., and the first thing that they do after setting up is like go to the bedroom and get down to business. Mm -hmm. Like not saying that you can't do that, you know, that is a thing, but the way that she kind of gets dressed, lays down, it feels planned or forced. Mm -hmm. It just doesn't feel like a natural progression based on the dynamic that we've seen between this couple, which again, no judgment, but to me as the audience, it just felt a little bit unnatural. And you could tell that Gerald was trying to rush this. He's like, well, should I pour a champagne now? Yeah. And it's like, it's mm-hmm. one o'clock in the afternoon. Like, <laughs> yeah. You want to have this romantic evening. But no, he's ready to get down because obviously he had an activity in mind for taking that Viagra. So he enters the room shirtless with the handcuffs in hand. And she seems surprised, but puts on a brave face about it. They kiss until he pushes her back on the bed, and she nervously notes that she was expecting silk or velvet, but Gerald laughs and says these cuffs are the real deal and that others would break if you get going too hard. Okay. I'm not I'm not king shaming here. I'm no, Ger- no, no. I'm Gerald shaming here. Well, also because we can see, you know, we are very attuned to Jessie mm-hmm. and her reactions, her expressions and her hesitant comments. So I think that's really kind of where the reservation comes from. This feels again like that feeling of unnaturalness being forced. There's like a disconnect here. But anyway, she is cuffed to the bed. Again, this is like a a bedpost that has it's like a wooden backboard and it has like two spires on the back. Some during the plot trivia. Oh my god. What does the headboard look like? Don't tell me it's that fucking mirror. It's the lacer glass. Oh my <laughs> god. The headboard of the bed is the lower half of the lacer glass. Wow. That's amazing. Yes, with spires on it. Yeah. Apparently. Wow. 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 I love that that sinister mirror is now this like sinister backboard. So he cuffs her wrists to the bedpost, saying, this is good, you'll like this. Again, telling her what she'll Mm -hmm. like. And he has her test them to make sure she can't move and compliments her slip, saying that he'd like it better around her shoulders and forcefully flattens her out on the bed and moves to the bathroom to take yet another Viagra. Mm -hmm. So when he returns from the bathroom, and this is like an open concept bathroom, by the way, there's not like a door. It's almost like a It's just kind of like an opening into the bathroom. And then maybe like the toilet is around the corner. Mm -hmm. So it's like a very open concept bedroom. It's like a big vanity is like in there. It's like part of the bedroom. But there is a separation of space. So he returns from that vanity back to the bed and he immediately starts doing some role play. He acts like he found her handcuffed on the bed this way. He notes that he's not her husband. Where is her husband? And he gets on top of her and starts telling her, you know, how isolated they are. Nobody would hear them if she tried to call for help. And he beckons her to try calling for help. And at first, she kind of does. She's like, oh, help. (laughs) 
but you can tell she hates it. She's feeling a little uncomfortable. She's not really warming up to it. And Gerald is kind of increasing this pressure. Again, this aggressive sort of role that he has stepped into in this sort of fantasy that he is filling out right now. And we can see Jesse starts to become very upset. She starts yelling at Gerald to stop. And at first he doesn't, which these moments where Gerald is not listening to her are so frustrating to watch. But she finally like kicks him off of her. After he calls himself daddy. Yes, he does call himself daddy. Because <laughs> he encourages her, keep fighting me, make it feel real. Daddy gets what daddy wants. And it's yes. like... <laughs> and she gets mad and she's like, don't call yourself fucking daddy. Like, what the fuck? She's so upset. And he immediately starts gaslighting her like, whoa, whoa, I was just trying something. Like, it's cool. Just relax. But clearly she's on edge because she just had to force him off of her. He was not taking her protests seriously, even though she was clearly saying, no, no, I am uncomfortable. And saying uncuff me and he's not doing it. And that's exactly what happens next. She tells him to uncuff her after, you know, saying, you haven't touched me for months. You're trying to save our marriage. Uncuff me. And he says, what if I don't? Yeah. He is saying, well, what if I'm just sweet and tries to flatten her out again? And she's like, now you have this rape fantasy that I never knew you had. You didn't have any interest in fucking me until I played into this little sex game that you Mm -hmm. have. And he tries forcefully kissing her and she bites his lip, tells him to stop. Then he's like, well, what the fuck's the matter with you? How did we get so wrong? You know, you and I were happy once. But then the height of this moment, as he's explaining himself, he starts grasping at his chest and like kind of like circling his shoulder, circling his arm, breathing heavily, shaking. And then as Jesse's being like, what's going on? Are you okay? What's going on? He moans, clasps at his chest one last time and collapses on top of her with his face buried in her neck. So it's giving he had a heart attack. He had a heart attack. She is not processing the moment. She is convinced that he is playing a game, which I don't blame her for because he was kind of fucking around earlier. And obviously she's in denial that something serious like this has happened while she is still handcuffed to the bed, mind you. She uses her legs to push him up and call to him and try to wake him up. But then he ends up falling backwards and thudding off the bed onto the floor. She is still not convinced that something is still really wrong. She barters with him to wake him up. She says, you can do anything you want to me. Just wake up. Just wake up. But then she can see, again, because he fell off the foot of the bed, she can't see his full body, but she can see the top of his head and that there is a pool of blood forming at the top of his head. She screams for help, but again, an establishing shot of their isolated lake house shows that nobody can hear her. So dusk falls. We return to her sniffling and whimpering for help at this point. You could tell she's been doing this for hours. She hears a twig snap outside. She begins calling for help again. Here's a gate clang. And she's like, oh my gosh, Gerald Turt, please. Nate, Kelly, which I'm guessing are the names of her neighbors. But she realizes that the noises that are being made is the dog. Uh Uh-huh. The dog has wandered his ass inside of the house. And I love this little introductory, I guess, bid for company she has. She's like, hi, how was the steak? (laughs) It was a $200 portion, you know. I don't suppose you're a rescue dog. I didn't think so. (laughs) And, you know, it's very funny because she's just trying to make light of the situation. But the dog approaches Gerald's body and begins panting. Mm-hmm. So Jesse, you know, is calling for the dog to back off to get away from him. But the dog continues ebbing and flowing away from the body and eventually starts licking Gerald's arm and beginning to tear at it. Jesse then remembers there is a shelf above her and she is able to reach above her to the shelf, grab a book, the book, <laughs> during the plot trivia. 
The book above the bed at the beginning is entitled Midnight Mass. The title of the eventual show Flanagan would go on to create for Netflix, and additionally, the author that Kate Siegel's character in Hush wrote. I love that. I love this man so much. So she throws Midnight Mass at the dog, (laughs) momentarily scaring him away, but not enough to stop him from tearing off a nice little chunk of Gerald's arm flesh in Mm. full view. (laughs) Mm, Delicious. But then suddenly, Gerald stands up and begins talking to her. But as Jesse sits there stunned, she looks on the ground and sees that Gerald's body is still on the floor, dead. So we see this is the first moment she starts hallucinating. And her thoughts have now taken on the form of Gerald. So the first thing he starts talking to her about is a reminder of a joke he told once at a party. Apparently, he told the joke, what is a woman anyway? A life support system for a cunt. And he taunts her for smiling the whole night after he told that joke, never saying anything about it or speaking up about him saying something so crude. And he begins to chastise her for wasting so much time and daylight crying on the bed. She has spent the last several hours sort of in denial. He's chastising her for it. And he's telling her that she's already beginning to suffer from dehydration and fatigue. Suddenly, Jesse, kind of in like an effort to prove her husband wrong and say, fuck you for being so rude to me, miraculously pulls her hand out of one of the cuffs, breaks the post of the other post her hand is cuffed to, and breaks free. But then as she turns around, she sees that she is still trapped on the bed, and now a second form of consciousness in the form of a free version of herself has materialized in the room next to the imagined version of Gerald. So we have Gerald, who we're just going to call him Gerald because obviously the other Gerald is dead. So we have Gerald. And then we have free Jesse. And then we have trapped Jesse. Yes, it's very much like angel and devil on the shoulder are externalized, but it's herself. And then it's the dead version of her husband. They start to immediately fall into their roles where Gerald asserts, I'm just telling her the way that things actually are while Free Jesse is saying, you're doing what you always did, minimizing, condescending, saying that men aren't so much blessed with penises as they are cursed by them. And today you might die because of Gerald's five inches. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. Well, she said, I think she says you have too much to do to die because of Gerald's five inches. I wrote, is this where I start an argument with zero observational data on what's considered average? <laughs> I think five inches is average. I, I would not know. <laughs> I don't know the stats. I don't know the stats. <laughs> anyway, Free Jesse calms trapped Jesse as she panics, saying, well, this is what you do. You panic. You go into denial, hoping that if you look away, it'll all just magically vanish. If you don't wake up, you're going to die in these cuffs. And you both know that you've already been sleepwalking since you were 12 years old. He put you in those handcuffs long before Gerald did. And now Gerald is approaching with concern, being like, who's he? But Jesse closes her eyes and wills them both away, staring at the wall as the last of the sun sets. Jesse tries to reach her phone that's sitting on the bedside table as Gerald and free Jesse critique her strategy, but it's not happening. Free Jesse goes on to say, if you can't get off the bed, you need to live long enough for someone to find you on it. And there is, at this point in the movie, a very clear difference between the dispositions of Free Jesse and Trapped Jesse. Trapped Jesse is very much scared. She oftentimes responds to recommendations by Free Jesse with, I can't, or concerned expressions. She seems very timid and scared about the possibility of living. But Free Jesse is very assertive. Like, this is what you're going to have to do. Don't listen to that. Don't listen to Gerald. This is what you're going to have to do. Remember this. Remember this. So we see that 
Free Jesse is very much a guiding source for Trapped Jesse, which I think is cool to note now because later on there's a little bit of a shift, which is so cool. Meanwhile, Gerald and Trap Jesse talk about Viagra and about how Jesse knew that Gerald took Viagra but never brought it up. And that the one time they almost talked about it was because Gerald couldn't get hard until there was one encounter where he pinned her hands above her head and choked her. And she laid there like a dutiful wife and never objected. But Free Jesse walks up and reminds Trapped Jesse, well, those pills made him very thirsty, which reminds her that there is a glass of water above her on the shelf. So Jessie wiggles with the shelf above her to slide the glass of water to the edge where her hand can reach it and bring it down, but she can't reach the glass to her lips because of the handcuffs. So Free Jessie instructs her to put it back to where she can reach it again until she figures out what to do. And then she remembers her slip tag that she had pulled off and laid on the shelf above her. So she reaches up, rolls it diagonally into a straw, and then is able to bring it to her mouth and use in the water glass and drink some water. Free Jesse reminds Trap Jesse to save some for later, and she does. She eventually passes out, and as she passes out, the dog seems to scent something and flees the house. So there seems to be another presence there, aside from Gerald and Free Jesse, which don't seem to have a bearing on the dog thus far. She wakes to the sound of the dog barking in the distance. It's still dark out, and she stares into the corner of the room where there's an outline of a very tall man. Very tall. That approaches from the darkness. She closes her eyes and tries to will him away, but he's still standing there when she opens them back up again. She asks who he is, but the man approaches and opens a box in his arms, showing a piece of jewelry, a bracelet. She closes her eyes again and and says, you're not real, and tries to will him away. But Gerald approaches saying, maybe, or maybe you're just not safe anymore. People are safe from ghouls and ghosts and the living dead in the daylight, and they're usually safe from them at night if they're with others. But an alone person in the dark, a woman alone in the dark, they're like open doors, Jesse. And if they scream for help, who knows what might answer? Who knows what someone might see in their solitary death? Is it so hard to believe that some of them might die of fear? Died of fear because they saw at their bedside the Moonlight Man. Maybe that's just what death looks like. So, new character, Mr. Moonlight Man. Mm -hmm. Gerald goes on to say, well, the dog left. Maybe the Moonlight Man just went under your bed. Maybe there's just not that much you can do about it, mouse. This seems to very much upset Jesse, saying, what did you just call me? Then her visual fades to black. But then it seems like a memory is triggered of her father from years and years ago. Okay, so this is the year. I forget what year this is. But it's the year of the last solar eclipse before 2017, which I thought was crazy because this movie came out in 2017, just like two or three weeks after that solar eclipse. And that comes into play because in her flashback, she's a 12-year-old girl and her family arrives at their lake house or a lake house to watch this solar eclipse in the 1970s. She, again, 12 years old, she's vacationing with her family, and they're getting ready to go out on the lake for the solar eclipse, but Jessie expresses reservations about that. She doesn't want to go on the boat with her parents and her brothers. We cut to a scene where we see her dad trying to persuade her mom, Kate Siegel, to let her stay behind. And we can see that there is tension between the parents on this one. It seems like the mother is frustrated with young Jessie. Seems like Jessie, I don't know, maybe she's at that teenage age. She's always protesting things her mother wants her to do. But her dad tries to sort of soften the situation by saying, I'll stay behind with her. It's fine. And there is a lot of vitriol between the mom and Jessie for some reason. 
Kate Siegel calls her daughter a nuisance. It's not just like, I have a teenager and this is frustrating. It's just like, your daughter is XYZ. Like, there is a lot of hatred here, which I think will come into play later when some groundworks for manipulation happen. Have you seen that TikTok trend that's like fathers seeing themselves in their sons and then mothers seeing themselves in their daughters yeah. and like the difference? So I feel like this is sort of a little bit of like a trope that we see, which is unfortunate, this idea of the jealous mother. But you're right. I think we're going to see a lot more of where that may come from because this father, as it turns out, is like a master manipulator. So mom goes out on the boat with the two youngest while dad stays behind. She's also pregnant with another. Oh, yes. Yes. Mom goes out with a two and a half on the boat <laughs> and <laughs> while well, dad stays behind with Jesse as they listen to the radio saying that the eclipse is about to happen and dad compliments Jesse's new dress. Jesse notes that her mom said it was too short, but her dad notes that mom's wrong and she looks amazing like a proper young woman. He gives her a little pair of cardboard binoculars to, I guess, like look at the eclipse through to be safe and urges her to scoot closer to him so they can share it. Trigger warning with a lot of things happening coming up. Nothing visual, but a lot the of content. the content is just not comfortable. Yeah. So they take turns looking through the box as the eclipse starts and dad is staring a little too long at his daughter and puts his arm around her. She asks what he's looking at, and he says that he's having a memory of how she used to sit on his lap as a little girl when they would look at the stars together. He's reminiscing on these me and mouse times. He then, like, sheepishly tries to field an idea and then runs it back to the point of doing something for old time's sake. And she's like, well, what? Like, what do you want to do? And he's like, well, you're a grown woman, and you're too old to sit on your daddy's lap anymore. I just miss my little girl sometimes. So again making it seem like it's her choice, it's her idea. And of course, you know, she's like a 12-year-old girl who wants to make her dad happy, so she relents to sit on his lap. They exchange I love yous as she starts looking at the eclipse on his lap, and her dad urges her to keep watching the eclipse as we hear the sound of him unbuckling his belt and some visual indicators that he is pleasuring himself as she sits on his lap and urges her just to keep watching as the eclipse happens. Yeah, and the thing is, like, we can see as she continues watching the eclipse, she also becomes aware that something is wrong. Something is wrong. And we can see, like, she continues looking through the binoculars, but she stops enjoying the moment because she knows something is wrong, but she feels as though she can't move because her father is telling her just to keep watching. Also, the lighting becomes, like, really red as this happens, and it kind of reminds me of the night house. Mm -hmm. Like, that eclipse over the lake, like, that really stunning red lighting. But, of course, in this case, it's less cool and a lot more sinister. Yeah. I think the overlapping of the eclipse with this life-changing moment in young Jesse's life. And it's so interesting about how that lighting and how the eclipse is used as, like, a justification later for the dad's behavior. I actually – so, I have some thoughts on that. And I can like lay them out now because I don't actually have any conclusions about these thoughts. So maybe if I float them now, you can also think about them and we can see if we sure. have any ideas. But what I noticed is that there's a lot of back and forth between moonlight and sunlight imagery. Usually moonlight is associated with femininity and sunlight is associated with masculinity. And so, for example, we've already heard about the moonlight man. And again, like we'll hear more about the moonlight man, like what he could symbolize. 
But I think it's interesting that Jessie goes through this formative experience that frames the rest of her life and how she interacts with men during an eclipse of the sun. Mm -hmm. So like, is the eclipse something that is meant to sort of symbolize the overshadowing of her relationship with men, not even just romantically, but just like her father, like in her life? Or is this sun imagery supposed to symbolize corrupt masculinity? Because we know, you know, Gerald is a questionable character. Her father is a questionable character. Is it supposed to sort of symbolize corrupt masculinity? I think it's too early to kind of really talk about this in depth right now based on where we are with the plot. But I'm curious because there is that back and forth daytime, nighttime, the moonlight man, the solar eclipse. So I'm kind of wondering if there's intentional symbolism there or if it's just sort of a pattern that is emerging. I will talk about like a visual cue that I think supports that idea just because it's part of the Moonlight Man's characterization and the art for the film Okay, is the fact that the indicator of the eclipse is the red outline. Mm -hmm. So assuming that this is an eclipse where the moon is going over the sun, it's like her femininity is surrounded by masculinity Mm. or is framed by masculinity. Oh, like in a cuff, like a handcuff. Yes. But it can only exist within the perimeter of that circle, right? Like it can only exist in that diameter because the whole imagery that we see in the irises of the Moonlight Man and literally in like the film's art is just this red circle. And the only reason that that circle is there is because she's supposed to be in the middle of it. And her entire femininity is being framed by this force of masculinity that's coming in behind her and putting heat on behind her. Like it doesn't exist on its own. Thank you. I'm excited. To, I'm excited to talk about this further sort of once we get to the end and we can run more theories. So Jesse wakes up in a lot of pain. Her hands are now purple from lack of circulation. There are now flies buzzing around Gerald's body and the dog is back at his position at the door munching on some man meat. Free- <laughs> My favorite. My favorite. Free Jesse notes that, you know, she's been hanging on her wrists all night, that she needs circulation, kind of coaches her through sipping more water, and is greeted by Gerald again, who notes that you never told me about the eclipse. And Jesse says, I never told anybody. Gerald goes on to say, well, it's no wonder our marriage didn't work. And Jesse's like, well, this wasn't relevant to us. But Free Jesse bites back. Really? You married an older man. Your father was a lawyer. Gerald was a lawyer. Your father minimized you, objectified you. The point is, Jesse, you married into the only dynamic you've ever known. You were a girl. He was a man. And you never walked away from that. That afternoon never ended. You got your period a month before it happened, right? Maybe that's what got him going. He smelled the blood and did what dogs do. Our friend in the hall is the only man you've ever known. He had Kobe ribeye until he had Gerald, and your father had your mother until you were nice and right. Mm. And Gerald, the late hours, the mystery callers, the weekend trips, what was he really doing? You ignored it, but you knew that his hunger for you had faded, and a dog's gotta eat. Jesse's like, well, I handled it. And Free Jesse bites back, sure, just like you handled those last few minutes on Daddy's lap. And I'm like, Jesus fucking Christ. Like, we thought that Free Jesse was like obviously on our side. But again, this is just really proving that these characters are not external characters, but functions of her mind and how she's speaking to herself and how yes. she's rationalizing herself, how she's blaming herself. And Jesse goes on to cry that he didn't rape me or even touch me. He only touched himself. And if you want to blame somebody, you can blame my mother, the boat, the sundress that was too short. What he did to me on that swing wasn't the worst thing that anyone's ever done. And Free Jesse says, no, that would be what he did after you in the bedroom. Mm-hmm. So again, sewing this continued flashback that we do not see right away, but we know is coming. 
trap jesse just then remembers well in the story she remembers like seeing a woman by a well during the eclipse and i guess she just kind of uses this visual to say seeing this woman by this well encouraged her to imagine the secrets that she had like physical objects she could throw down the well and keep there and prevent them from ever coming to the surface like pennies down a well these secrets down a well and i think that that visual is really striking because i think it like reaffirms jesse's youth to kind of like see this visual during a traumatic moment and use it as something like an imagination exercise i'm just gonna pretend these are pennies down that well and i'm not gonna talk about it and i'm gonna move on i think it's such an innocent yet striking image to know a child thought of an experience during a time of trauma and I'm thinking back to Dr. Sleep, too, just the idea of compartmentalizing, like, the mind boxes in Danny's mm, mind, right? Mm -hmm. Like, how you can just find a place for something to sit and think that it doesn't touch the other things that you interact with. That's such a good point. And Jesse obviously doesn't think that this relationship with her father would have anything to do with Gerald. But obviously, Free Jesse is like, it has everything to do with Gerald. It framed your entire relationship with Gerald. But to Jesse, it's at the bottom of the well. It hasn't touched her. She hasn't had to think about it. Mm-hmm. Gerald reappears then and starts teasing Jesse more about the Moonlight Man she saw earlier and again denies that the Moonlight Man is her imagination and points out a massive bloody footprint on the floor, which it's easy, I think, to watch in this moment and just imagine it's a hallucination. But it is also interesting again to note that this dog is a key figure in distinguishing reality from hallucination. And again, this dog is not reacting when it's free Jesse and Gerald speaking to Jesse. But the dog, again, cowers out of the room. The dog would not have left a big bloody footprint like that. No one would have left a big bloody footprint like that. So again, we're still kind of having this moment where, yes, we can see clear examples of hallucination versus reality. But this whole story surrounding the Moonlight Man is blurred. We're not really sure where he fits. So then Jessie falls asleep again and has another flashback to her bedroom at the lake house when she was 12. She has changed out of her sundress and lays her sundress down on her bed, much like we saw adult Jessie lay her blue slip on her bed in the beginning of the film. She sits down on the edge of her bed, facing the window, and her father comes in and approaches her and sits down on the bed next to her and tells her he's ashamed of what he did. He starts to say, we should tell your mother, we have to come clean. But then he manipulates her into agreeing never to tell anyone by framing it like, mom won't think it's your fault. Oh, maybe she will. He reminds her that her mom might think the whole thing was Jesse's fault. He even subtly challenges her that she can't keep a secret because she's so young, which again encourages Jesse to sort of rise to the occasion and insist that she is adult enough and mature enough to keep these secrets. And then basically by the end of the conversation, this man has so skillfully gotten Jesse to insist that they keep this secret and never tell anybody. This is the moment I think we see this figurative handcuffing where Jessie, as a young girl, has resigned herself to this silent secrecy, but not of her own volition because she was manipulated to do so by a man that, as her father, she trusts very much and relied on and, as far as she knew, had a very strong father-daughter relationship with. And again, it's the whole idea that he's making it seem like it's her idea. No, that 
shit is crazy. Like, okay, like, okay, we'll try things your way. When Mm -hmm. it's like, he's the one who's planted these ideas of doubt and made her beg not to tell her mother Mm -hmm. because she already knows she has a fragile relationship with her mother and that if all this were to go down, it would be blamed on Jesse and not the fucking adult in the room. And this goes back to what you said earlier about how he, as a predator, probably manufactured this relationship by whispering in Jesse's ear and then whispering in his wife's ear and trying to set these two against one another because he knew that her mother would have been Jesse's next greatest ally, if anything, even more so than him, right? And he is purposely attacking that relationship to make sure that Jesse doesn't have an ally she can go to or a confidant she can talk to about something like this. And he's isolating her, even in her own family. And then he takes it a step further by blaming the eclipse. He's like, you know, sometimes people do weird things when the moon is out. Maybe this eclipse did this. I'm so ashamed of what I did. I did such a shameful thing. And then he faces her again and says, nothing ever happened. So now it's not only we're keeping a secret. It's your idea to keep the secret. You can't even tell your friends the secret. Once we decide on the secret, nobody can know. It's Mm -hmm. not just for now. It's for forever. It's turning to her and saying, nothing happened. Mm -hmm. So again, it's just this manipulation, not even subtle, this like horrific level of manipulation. But again, to a kid, I know you don't, you know, she's not going to clock that. Like I can see how she wouldn't have returned to this as like a source of her unhappiness or trauma. Like it was so expertly covered up, I think for a 12 year old kid. And this actress does a really fucking good job acting it out. You know, he gets up very nonchalantly. He's like, all right, I'm going to start cooking on the grill for when the others get back. Come help me when you want to. Like, again, like acting like they just talked about a fucking sport and not (laughs) what the fuck happened. Yeah. And then we're very much cut back to Jesse waking up in the present. And I'm like, oh, my God, we're back and talk to me. (laughs) Because the Moonlight Man is licking her toes. Uh Yes, and it is giving talk to me. But then it seems like she kind of flashes out of seeing the Moonlight Man and it's the dog licking her toes. She kicks the dog in the face. He bites back. She kicks the dog again, and the dog settles for another chunk of Gerald, one chunk at a time. Gerald then reappears and taunts Jesse again about her isolation, how long it will be before their bodies are discovered. He reminds her that the man she saw in the bedroom was death, so the Moonlight Man is death, and he'll be back for her tonight if she doesn't do something. Jesse then starts singing Hush Little Baby to herself, quietly interjecting, I'm going to die between the lines as she slowly drifts off to sleep again. Jesse has another vision of the eclipsed sun, and she goes back into her childhood room at the lake house and approaches her younger self. Young Jesse is in handcuffs, like sitting on the bed with her hands cuffed in front of her on her lap. Adult Jesse stands next to her, and young Jesse tells her older self that she needs to remember, not the sun not the eclipse, after. Older Jessie in the vision doesn't seem sure of what she means, but then she has another vision of sitting at dinner that night with the rest of her family, eating, I guess, whatever the fuck her dad grilled, and watching her mom and dad have a conversation when she, in frustration, squeezes her water glass so hard that it slices her hand. It breaks and slices her hand. And this encourages her to have a breakthrough. She comes to and realizes that blood, if she can cut her hand and get the blood flowing, she might be able to kind of slide herself out of the cuff. Of course, she'll have to cut into her skin as well to try to get some of that out of the way. So this is the moment that I loved so much because we see this revelation first from Free Jesse, and she says, but the thing about blood, but then trapped Jesse interjects and finishes for her. But the thing about blood is that until it clots, it's slick as oil. 
And I love this moment because this is where we see for the first time trapped Jesse taking control of her escape. Like she takes on the confident tone of free Jesse. And like, this is where we can really see that turning point, like that character development. Like she is now not just projecting this will to escape on an outside vision, but she is now embodying it and going to take steps forward to do it. So the Jessies talk through the process. They're like, okay, you're going to break a glass. You're going to slice into your skin, but not too deep because you don't want to bleed out. But it has to be deep enough that you can slide your hand and skin out through the handcuff. She also reminds her, you have to do this quickly because you're already dehydrated. Your health is already in a poor state. And then even Gerald interjects and is like, it's not like she's going to be able to walk. She's been sitting on a bed for a day and a half. I was like, Gerald, what the fuck? Get out of here. It's still showing that she has those like negative self-talk thoughts and all that kind of stuff. True, true. But she does it. She reaches up, grabs the glass, cracks it on the side of the shelf, wedges a shard into like a chip on the side, and then is able to drag her wrist across horizontally and then up through her palm vertically, like an inverted capital letter T. And then that gives her skin enough movement and gives her skin also enough lubricant with the flowing blood that she is able... That she is able. So proud of you for to, describing Thank you so <laughs> much. I thank you so much. I thought you were about to be like Shay. You have to. Yeah. Do this. <laughs> no, I can't. I sometimes I sometimes I have to be brave. <laughs> <laughs> I can't always give it to you, but she's able to slide her hand through the cuff. Okay, so that that was probably the worst part. Okay, if you're still here, good job. That's the worst. So she slides her hand through the cuff. She still has one hand in a cuff, obviously, but she's able to kind of scoot the bed over far enough that she's finally able to use her toes to reach for the phone. What does she do with this? It's dead, isn't it? Yeah, I think she thought it would be alive. But it wasn't. But it so wasn't. then she's like, plan B, she scoots the bed closer to that vanity, like the bathroom vanity where the handcuff key is sitting, and she's able to barely use her bad hand <laughs> to unlock herself from the other cuff. And now she is free. Well, because I think the graphic detail you did not go into. Oh, shit. What did I miss? Is when she drags her hand out of the cuff, because she has sliced her wrist in such a way, the skin on her hand yeah. <laughs> is inside out, degloving her hand. Yeah. I mean, not fully, though. Not fully. But a partial degloving. <laughs> when she is using the key to unlock her other wrist, you have to think that the skin from her wrist up to about the middle part of her palm is not on her hand. It is off her hand. Yeah, it's like kind of like hanging there. It has turned inside out in her attempt to pull it out through the cuffs. Yeah. It is. It's like, really, it's really rough. And like in the scene, you can see, I mean, sorry for being so graphic, but you can see like her tendons. Mm -hmm. But she does it and she unlocks her other hand and she is triumphant, which is excellent, excellent news. And then she takes some maxi pads to like cover her hand up. This was giving she's the man tampon scene. But then she passes out immediately from blood loss and fatigue on the floor, but only temporarily because she wakes up to the dog going after her bloody hand. Right. So the pain wakes her up and she's immediately faced with Gerald's dead snacked upon body. Mm -hmm. And we can see that not only are chunks of his arms missing, but his face has also been eaten off in a very graphic way, which I am so fucking glad that most of his body was out of her sight line for this kind of thing. Anyway, I digress. She's able to grab the car keys that are sitting on the dresser. As she goes outside, she sees the dog cower at something. And she looks down the long hallway before she gets out and sees that it's the Moonlight Man at the end of the hallway. 
she approaches him, gives him her wedding ring for his little like trinket box. And after that, wordlessly makes it to her car. Well, she says one thing. What does she say? You're only made of moonlight. Because that comes back later. So she says that, gets into the car, sees a vision of a dressed Gerald standing outside of the house, waves goodbye to him, and then drives away. But of course, she is struggling to operate this vehicle because of her physical state. She ends up looking into her rearview mirror after a couple miles, sees the Moonlight Man in the backseat with his glowing eyes, who whispers mouse in her ear just before Jesse loses control of the car and crashes into a tree. However, the noise alerts people from a nearby house that something has gone down. We see some lights flick on inside, and then Jesse gets out of the car, sees that people are approaching, and then promptly passes it out on the ground. But we can see that these people get to her and presumably help her get to safety and get the medical attention she needs. Later, we see that Jesse has been treated. She is still wearing a glove on her injured hand as she reaches into her desk and pulls out a document and begins narrating a letter that she's writing and begins saying that she's still wearing a glove three skin grafts later because it still doesn't work right. She said that the others believed her amnesia and that Gerald's firm kept all the details out of the papers and everyone accepted his death as a heart attack. And everything went back to normal, except now when she closes her eyes to sleep, she sees the Midnight Man, who appears at the foot of her bed, the handcuffs in the box. And this is extra scary because no one ever found her wedding ring. Yeah. So again, this continued blurring of reality and hallucination when it comes to this Moonlight Man. She goes on to say that what got her through those nights were you, the person she's writing to, who came back from your sunless world to remind her that his shackles were silence and Gerald's were comfort, and now her days are better. She took the money and started a foundation for boys and girls like us, and now she tells her story every day. I'm sorry, my face is getting warm. Oh, just, no. just hearing about that. I was sobbing. Oh, like no. a baby. I thought this was gorgeous. And we see an adult Jesse sitting with a young teenager and starts a story by saying, when I was 12, I went to a lake house with my family. So she has gotten a lot more comfort telling the story of her father. But she goes on to say, but at night, she still waits for him to come claim her. And she thought that he was just this manifestation of her grief until six months later, a story about a grave robber and necrophiliac hit the papers and the image looked like the Moonlight Man, but his name was Raymond Jobert. I didn't cover everything that they said he did. I like lost the details here. So if you want to. So I do have some details. So apparently this Raymond Jobert was arrested for digging up crypts. <laughs> Right. Stealing bones and jewels. Okay, which explains his little box of like bracelets and bones. And sometimes eating the faces of male corpses. Apparently, there was one instance where he even moved on from like a corpse to a real living man, which I think is what ended up getting him caught by authorities. She ends her letter saying that Mouse would be the only one to understand her story. So we understand that she's writing a letter to her younger self. And she reveals that Jobert is being arraigned tomorrow and that we deserve to see the sun again. She also says about Jobert, this monster was real, real as they come, as real as the cuffs, as the dog, as real as the eclipse. So again, affirming that we are now supposed to believe that the man, or at least part of the visions she was having of the Moonlight Man, were really this like serial killer, mm -hmm. which is such a left turn. Yes, that in, is in left the, turn. In the last couple minutes of the movie. So yes, this Moonlight Man was an actual fucking cannibal. <laughs> yeah, who allegedly appeared to her in this house. 
So Jesse ends up entering the courtroom as Jobert is being arraigned and the counts are being read against him. And she interrupts court (laughs) and yells at him to face her. And he ends up breaking his restraints and repeats back to her what she said to him in a very mocking tone. You're not real. You're only made of moonlight. Was it mocking? I think it was meant to be mocking. Because part of me wondered, like, if he... Just sounds like that. Or if he was saying to her what she thought of him. Like, did he also think he was hallucinating her? I don't know. When I read summaries of it, people summarized it in a mocking tone. Oh, okay. Like, he knew who she was and yeah. he was maybe trying to scare her. And That's what I took okay. it as. Okay, that makes sense. Especially because of what she says. So, she continues to approach him as he's restrained and his face vacillates between him, her father, and then Gerald. So, you could tell that she is placing all of her trauma onto this figure and she smiles at him and says, you're so much smaller than I remember. And this man is huge. So, oh God, yeah, he must be seven feet tall. He is very tall and turns and leaves. And she walks out of the building to see the sun shining and the last of the eclipse has passed over the sun. So she gets to see the sun again. Her younger self gets to see the sun again. And that's the movie. You know what's wild about covering this movie in 2024? Hmm. There's supposed to be a total eclipse this year. So like, wow, we really kept this on theme. We really did. Some trivia about the physicality of the Moonlight Man In arguably one of the most disturbing plot developments in the Stephen King multiverse, Jesse's nightmare vision turns out to be very extremely real, even though it will be some time before Jesse figures this out. Played by cinema legend Carol Stroykin, Raymond Andrew Jobert is a serial killer, necrophiliac, and cannibal who's been working the area. He suffers from the rare disorder acromagaly, which happens when the pituitary gland continues to release too many growth hormones after a person's adult skeleton has already fused. It causes the face, hands, and feet to distend. Stroykin lives with this in real life, but in the film, his own unique physique was greatly exaggerated for extra horror movie effect. And this comes from a Looper article by Sazen Kohler. And fun fact, we talked about this earlier, Stroykin plays Grandpa Flick in Doctor Sleep, who also plays a very tall, menacing man. So going into explaining the Moonlight Man, this comes from a Screen Rant article by Alex Leadbeater. So Alex writes, Overnight, while tied to the bed, Jesse is visited by a tall, disproportioned figure, played by Carol Stroykin. He stands silently in the corner with a bag full of bones and personal items. That was very funny. <laughs> moving slowly toward her every time she looks away like a night terror she can't awake from. Most of his backstory comes from the self-suggestion in Jesse's mind while trying to rationalize him as a trick of the light or moonbeams. She begins to view him as the embodiment of death. Within this, there is a lurking suggestion that there really is something physical there. The dog slowly feasting on Gerald is spooked by his presence and a bloody footprint is left on the floor. He's last seen in the back of the car, causing her to crash. The monster was actually Raymond Andrew Jobert, a very real necrophile-turned-serial killer who suffered from agromagaly, leading to his extreme proportions. He started as a graveyard vandal in Alabama, stealing jewelry from recently buried corpses, then escalated, desecrating bodies, and eventually stealing various parts of the anatomy, and at one point went full Ed Gein and preserved his family. Jobert came across Jesse seemingly by accident, taking part from Gerald, which she assumed to be the actions of the hungry dog. He was finally discovered when he moved to straight-up murder and was caught mid-act. While the twist obviously shows that Jobert was real, there's evidently moments where it was all in Jesse's head. He didn't sneak into her apartment every night after she was saved. Shorthand, anytime Jobert appears in the red light of the eclipse or with supernaturally bright eyes, this is safely in Jesse's head, her mind taking his image and using it as an emblem of her fear. 
The other case where it's an imaginary killer is when Jesse talks with Gerald about him being under the bed. The hand reaching up has been in her mind. Everything else, however, appears to be real. And I'm guessing in the backseat of the car, it has to be fake, too. With like yeah, yeah, because I think I do think his eyes glow yes. in the backseat of the car. Yeah. yeah, and he says mouse, which otherwise, yeah. why would he know that? It's initially unclear why he spared Jesse. In the letter, she presumes it's because he was reported to favor male victims when it came to mutilation, which in the context of his stalking is all the more unsettling. When she confronts him at his arraignment, however, we learn that they may share a strange connection. Upon seeing her, he breaks out of his handcuffs and says, you're not real, you're only made of moonlight, exactly what she thought he was. Mm-hmm. So I just put that in there to kind of summarize that, yes, he was real, but he also was not real. (laughs) This had me thinking, too, about what I sort of asked before about this relationship between sunlight and moonlight. I think it's interesting that this man face eating serial killer is the moonlight man because he did not go after Jesse. He like preys on mostly, it seems like, male victims, Mm -hmm. which I think is interesting for like the quote unquote moonlight man to do that as like a villain We know Jesse's head rationalized him as a man made of moonlight, but he is this figure of moonlight, a feminine entity who preys on men. Yeah, it is interesting because if you're thinking about the eclipse, like what's going over what, the moonlight man is what's kind of saving her from harm against men in that capacity. But it's also weird because at the end, he takes the form of her father and of Gerald. Yeah. Is it like this backwards, no, I'm here to help you type of situation? I don't know. In one way, it's like, well, he didn't hurt her. But in the other way, it's like, well, he didn't help her. Mm -hmm. (laughs) He didn't, like, go find a phone and call someone. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. So I don't really know what it means, but I thought, again, this relationship between moonlight, sunlight, this eclipse, the shadow of the moon overshadowing the sun or whatever, like, what does that mean? But maybe it's just kind of more of a cool thing as opposed to something that really has, like, a clear meaning. She continued to see him afterwards as, like, trauma, but then assumedly after she faced him in court and actually faced her problems because that's what free jesse kept yelling at her for is like you close your eyes you forget everything you run away from everything but she like did the most confrontational thing she could have done and called him small to his face Mm -hmm. and then like turned around and walked away from it yeah like he was the embodiment of that specific trauma Mm -hmm. like the trauma of being handcuffed to the bed and gerald dying and navigating that situation so yeah facing that i think shows character growth because you're right she didn't run away from that when she found out he was a real person like she might have done with her trauma in her past so on trauma oh on trauma (laughs) on trauma this is from a looper article by sezin kohler who writes sometimes unfortunately it takes a new trauma in order for old traumas to resurface and bring along an opportunity to heal jesse hadn't realized how much that event with her father had shifted the course of her life until she had ended up handcuffed to a bed with police grade cuffs a hungry stray dog and a serial killer watching her sleep at night holy shit He didn't rape me, Jesse says to herself about that fateful day with her dad during the eclipse. He didn't even touch me. That wasn't even the worst thing anyone ever did to me. And while she goes on to say the worst thing was Tom manipulating her silence afterward, we also know that Gerald did and said terrible things to Jesse during their marriage long before he handcuffed her to the bed. Jesse took those acts of often sexual violence quietly and kept them to herself, just as she did with her father. The metaphorical walls that her father forced her to construct around herself to protect him from accountability stayed up until the moment she slid her hand free of Gerald's actual handcuffs. Forcing children to keep terrible secrets is a metaphorical imprisonment that can affect them for the rest of their lives, and Gerald's game details in stark relief just how dangerous and damaging this dynamic can be, both physically and psychologically. Childhood trauma is one of Stephen King's major overarching themes, and Gerald's game explores it with empathy and compassion. Gerald is an insidious manipulator who controls Jesse in ways so subtle she doesn't realize until it's too late to escape. 
Since she could never fully admit just how monstrous her father was, neither could she admit it about her husband. But it all goes back to the summer of the eclipse. We both know you've been sleepwalking since you were 12 years old, Jesse's altar says. We both know he put you in those handcuffs way before Gerald did. If we don't tell your mom today, we can't ever tell anyone, Tom warns Jesse. We walk out of this room and it never happened. Jesse's coerced acceptance that follows is as grotesque as anything she had to do to survive Gerald's game. It's also impossible to ignore the way Jesse's mom openly despised her and was verbally abusive, creating an environment that put her in competition with Jesse, leaving Jesse with no other parental figure to turn to. It's clear in Gerald's game that Jesse's mother suspected something happened during the eclipse, but she does nothing to stand up to protect her daughter. The people that were supposed to protect you from the monsters turn out to be the monsters themselves, and they almost killed you, Jesse reflects. But the key word here is almost, Jesse survived. Yeah, I love that. I really love that we get that survivor ending. It's not like the movie ended on that scene where she is saved by those good Samaritans who heard the car crash and rushed out to her aid. Like it ends with her writing that letter to her younger self and getting to comment on all the things that she's gotten to do in the last six months to move her life forward and make positive differences in other people's life. Like I think that that is such a powerful conclusion. Yeah, I mean, the movie is certainly dark and it's dealing with a lot of very real themes. But Carla Gugino just does so fucking well negotiating herself through these emotions. And while we're not like grateful that she had to endure anything at all, it really seems like she took the experience and was able to kind of have like 20 years of therapy in like two and a half days. (laughs) Yeah, right. (laughs) Through some externalization and a dog (laughs) and a cannibal. Yeah. Which, by the way, I do think it's interesting to note that the only quote-unquote real monster, this escaped cannibal-turned-serial killer, did not come for Jesse, but the people in the story who were supposed to protect her were the ones that hurt her, like her father and her husband. And I'm wondering, like, did you miss that her father didn't have as much of a presence currently in the story? Like, I was wondering, is he still alive? That is a really good question. I guess I just assume that he was either dead or maybe she just does not maintain contact with him. But that has me wondering, like, what is their current state or like, what was their relationship like after that? Yeah, because while I'm grateful that she was able to break out of what she did in that time, and maybe like that's not what the story is about, right? Like maybe she doesn't have to go back and renegotiate what the relationship with her father looked like from here on after. But Free Jesse does so much to establish that everything that she's built since then is based off of that. So are we to assume that her freeing herself from Gerald's game was also rectifying or healing everything that preceded it? Or is that just the work of the foundation? It just seemed like that part of the healing journey was kind of glossed over, which yeah. is fine. Like, mm-hmm. that's not what the movie's about. And, and like, that's even, okay. Even the rest of her family, like her siblings, because she mentions in that one scene with her younger self, needing to be silent so she could protect her younger sister yeah kind of like bearing that burden i wonder what a sequel to this would look like in somebody's imagination like i know that's the only thing i wish i did here is i didn't look at the book comparison because so many people thought this would never be adapted and obviously i think if you were to try to draw comparisons between the two like i don't think that there was and granted i never read the text so if it was and you're yelling at me from the sidelines that's totally okay (laughs) But, like, I don't know that there was externalizations of Gerald and Free Jesse, like, in the book. I think they're completely different Mm -hmm. forms of media at this point. You know what I mean? But I've been wanting to do this one for a while, both because it's Flanagan and King, but also just because, you know, to your point, what you were saying earlier, it's just so emotionally effective Mm -hmm. and so well acted. 
did. Mm-hmm. And I think my last comment is I really loved, again, about the conclusion, Jesse returning to her younger self and speaking to her younger self. And then, of course, like the externalized version of herself and the externalized version of Gerald to embody the conversations that she was having with herself in her head. And then the way she speaks to her younger self. Like, I think there's so much here to say about the way you talk to yourself and the relationship you have with yourself and how detrimental negative self-talk can be, but how important it is to be honest with yourself and have like a positive dynamic with yourself so that you have a healthy internal monologue. Like, I think, I don't know, seeing her avenge her younger self for the sake of her present self and who she was as a child, I think there was something so touching about it. And I think it's something that I think a lot of people can relate to. And again, that's another trend on TikTok. (laughs) Sort of like, this is for her. And then it's like, somebody shows a picture of themselves when they were 11. I think that that's a really effective visual. And I liked seeing that. And I think, too, it's effective that we don't see those externalizations when she leaves that house. Like, we see Gerald waving goodbye in the driveway. And is that, like, the last time that she ever really needs his voice in her head again? And then, you know, obviously, we don't see free Jessie because she is free Mm Jessie. So, at this point, she can trust herself and she can coach herself through these things. And she doesn't need other voices in her head informing her decisions. Yeah. And that letter where she is speaking confidently about what she's going to do to the point where she is coaching her younger herself about Mm -hmm. it's okay we see the sun again she's definitely in therapy because that's such a therapy exercise yeah you know that week her therapist was like okay you're gonna go home (laughs) and you're gonna write a letter to your younger self and that's what she did (laughs) but i really like this i'm glad we covered it and we're gonna be moving on out of the king of earth and flaniverse not for lack of love we had a lot of fun But we're moving on to some more fun stuff for February. Yes, we are. And if you want to follow along with us, follow us on Instagram at The Horrors Podcast. Or feel free to contact us via email at thehorrorspodcast at gmail.com. And until next time, we're The Horrors. Bye. Bye. Bye.